I want to invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we pick up this sort of concluding study of this larger section that really began way back in chapter 8. We've been obviously in chapter 10 for some time, but as we've mentioned, this is a continuation. Thank you. This is a continuation of Paul's discussion, uh, really centering around this matter of Christian liberty and the unity and cohesiveness and fruitfulness of the body of Christ in the midst of um, exercising of Christian liberties and what is the, the right approach, the right way of thinking about these matters. But as we come to this concluding section in verses 23 of chapter 10, really picking up the first verse of chapter 11, uh, what we find in these verses, and I'm going to continue to kind of, I'm going to continue to ask you to, to continue to go a little bit deeper with me in this section, because what I believe we find, particularly in these closing verses, are uh, insights that really bring about in the life of every believer if we if we uh, grab hold of these truths and we apply them thoroughly to our lives consistently they bring about a depth of maturity that can yield up a trajectory of of christian fruitfulness in life and in the body of christ and in our families and our communities that is so substantial, um, so significant, and I think that as we consider sort of the context that we've been looking at, it might be easy for us to get a little bit distracted or, or maybe have to stretch a little bit in our thinking in, in terms of practical application because of the nature of the context, this food being sacrificed to idols and you know, can you eat it, can you not eat it, and what are our liberties around this particular matter, and what about, you know, participating in feasts and festivals that are centered around idolatrous worship in the pagan temple. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that most of you, if not all of you, in the ebb and flow of your daily life this past week, you weren't having to grapple with, you know, popping in to the pagan temple and kind of participating in some feast and eating food that was sacrificed to idols. I'm just assuming that that's probably the case. And so because of the nature of that, we've tried to kind of, you know, make, make it uh, clear about what some of the application points might be for our, our day and our time. And, of course, we know that idolatry doesn't always have to manifest itself in these, these ways. It manifests itself in all kinds of ways, in very contemporary ways. But I think that as we think about the, the nature of this context, it can be a little bit distracting from what I think are some profound truths about uh, about life in Christ and about fruitfulness and maturity in our walk with Christ, um, that as we get to these concluding verses, the Apostle Paul, I think, makes even more pointedly clear. And so I want us to really uh, grapple with what the Apostle Paul is teaching here because I'm, I'm finding them to be so, so monumental um, in just the general sweep of thinking about about what it means to continue to be sanctified and to grow in our knowledge of the truth and to, to try to have the mind of Christ and to be conformed to the very image of Christ. What it means to be 
fully identified with Christ, to be in Christ. Um, There are elements from this particular section that I believe kind of help us grab hold of that in maybe some tangible ways and continue to work these principles out in our lives with what I hope would be tremendous fruitfulness and and blessing. So let's read this passage together, uh, starting in verse 23 of chapter 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here in this last section, you have two seminal verses that that have to kind of grip our attention as we work through this passage. The first one is, of course, verse 31. Very familiar, I'm sure, to, to most of us, if not all of us. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is one of those sort of Christian bumper sticker kind of taglines that, you know, we can latch hold of because it is so comprehensive in its, in, in its application that it's like, well, this is what life is about. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And, of course, that is true as we'll continue to press that point. But in, in its broad, sweeping generality... We can, at times, I think, leave it hanging out there in this general space, and it never seeps into the very specific, minute nooks and crannies of our lives and our thinking. And so, I think it's important for us to recognize that there's a reason why the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat, it's a very specific, daily For most people, sustenance-driven function, or whether you eat, whether you eat or drink, I should say. So he he brings up very specific, mundane, daily, sustenance-driven functions before he generalizes, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The point here is that this is to get into the very fundamental specifics of our life and our activity and our thinking and our practice, even as it relates to what we do to sustain our physical bodies. That's how targeted and that's how specific this truth principle is for us. What's going on here in Corinth, as we've talked about before, is a great misunderstanding about the nature of this principle and really more broadly 
why we have Christian liberty, how Christian liberty really is fundamentally to be understood by the believer, and what are, if any, constraints on that, those liberties, what should compel us to maybe not exercise a liberty, or maybe more insightfully put, what should compel us to freely exercise our prerogative to deny ourselves of a liberty that is permissible. It's an interesting little twist on the principle of exercising your liberties. And so the Apostle Paul has been going after that throughout chapter 8, 9, and 10 about how the inclination for us, when we think about exercising liberty, it centers around this, this thought process of what we are entitled to do or what we're able to do and what is not constraining us in any way. So, for example, Scripture doesn't say you can't do that, or Scripture doesn't say you have to do this. So, therefore, that, that provides for us the framework about making decisions about whether we should or shouldn't do something. And it's largely, oftentimes, driven by just that, that kind of dichotomy that only takes into account our interaction with some principle of the allowability or the restriction in Scripture of a particular action and how it applies to me without any consideration of anyone else or anything else around me. The very exercise of thinking through our actions becomes very self-centered in and of itself. We, we, are, we, are, we are our own reference point in making the determinations about whether or not we should exercise Christian liberty. So we may be sort of in a clear path in the exercise of our Christian liberty, liberty, but the entire heart posture that we're exercising that liberty in is purely self-centered. And, at, and, and the greater risk that the Apostle Paul has pointed out is that you could do this and actually destroy a brother. Congratulations, you've identified a liberty, you're walking in it, meanwhile you're destroying a brother. That's why I'm saying this principle of doing all to the glory of God has to get down into every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds and our thinking and affect every area of decision-making that we find ourselves walking into on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day basis. The Corinthians were missing all of this because they were puffed up in their knowledge. They felt like they had arrived at a certain place of spiritual enlightenment and spiritual understanding. They were driven by and motivated by knowledge rather than by love. And this knowledge, Paul says, puffed them up. But love does something very different. Love is oriented toward building up. Knowledge puffs up me. Love builds up someone else. So they were missing all of this, and he's bringing this back to these concluding thoughts. And Gordon Fee kind of summarizes what's going on in this larger context. He says, the Corinthians had confused the true basis for Christian behavior. For them, it was a question of knowledge and rights. For Paul, it is a question of love and freedom. Knowledge and rights lead to pride. They are ultimately not Christian values because the bottom line is selfishness, the right to do as I please when I please. Love and freedom lead to edification. They are ultimately Christian behavioral values because the bottom line is the benefit of someone else that they may be saved. For Paul, 
the death of Christ, in which He gave Himself for us, is not only God's offer of pardon for sinners, but also the only proper model of discipleship. Hence, freedom does not mean to seek what pleases me, not even my own good. Rather, it means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek the benefit and build up another person. So that's why we arrived at our first sort of principal point last time, and I kind of I frame this up in a little bit of a provocative way, you might say, a little bit of, of a crude kind of locution by saying that the principle in view at the jump here in this passage is that regardless of the circumstance, it's usually not about you, so don't make it about you. And that's a helpful reminder. And the problem is, is that we are our own reference point all the time. Some of that is natural. We are alone with our thoughts a lot of the time. We're looking out in the world around us, and we're looking out at traffic, or we're looking out at a potential meeting we're heading into, or we're looking out at the next task on our list, and and we're the only reference point in view. And rarely do we engage in the discipline of reflecting upon those mundane, everyday activities through the lens of what might I do to help, serve, build up, encourage someone else. I mean, after all, I'm just making my commute to work. After all, I'm just heading into another meeting that I have to go to. I have 10 meetings this week, just another meeting. By the way, my my conviction around this is not driven by my mastery of this, just so you know. It's coming out of my own sense of conviction about my lack of awareness of these things. I am often my own reference point in my thinking. The fact of the matter is, is that the Apostle Paul would tell us here, all things are lawful or all things are permissible would be a better translation. When he says all things, he obviously doesn't mean everything. The context, of course, is this matter of eating food sacrificed to idols and various Christian liberties that are not prohibited in Scripture. All things are lawful. That's kind of the slogan of the Corinthian. But the response is, but not all things are helpful. In other words, there is a, there's, a, there's a guide rail here. It's not just about determining what Scripture permits or doesn't permit, and then walking that line and doing whatever you want within that framework. It's broader than that, because even the things that might be permissible, he would say, are not necessarily going to be helpful. And then he goes further... All things are lawful, or all things are, or all things are permissible, but not all things build up. And this is where the focus goes decidedly outward, because he's not referencing the building up of oneself; he's referencing the building up of the body, the building up of others. And so clearly, recognizing that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, and all things are lawful, but not all things build up, he then summarizes that principle with an imperative command. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is what I mean by, regardless of the circumstance, it's usually not about us. It's usually not about you. It's usually not about me. So let's not make it about ourselves. Let's make it about building others up. 
the principal reference point, even as we're considering our own activities, our own responsibilities, our own decisions for daily life, to one degree or another, those can be oriented around the building up of other people. They can be oriented around the benefit and blessing of others, even unbelievers and even strangers. It's usually not about us, so let's not make it about us. Now, we talked a little bit last time about this imperative term here in verse 24. Zateo is the word, and it means to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective, to strive for or to aim. So this, this translation, let no one seek his own good, when you see that word there, seek his own good, replace that with the idea of devoting serious effort to realizing one's desire. And so, if we're not to do that, but to seek the good of our neighbor, then the application of that imperative applies just the same in that direction. The faithful believer is not to be characterized by a serious devotion to and striving after his or her own good. He or she is rather to be seriously devoted to and in pursuit of the good of others. So it's not even a passive mindset. It's not even the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, if you have occasion, you know, if someone else happens to be around or... You know, try to think of them. Try to see what you can do to maybe help them out. This verb itself has intentionality behind it. Intense, serious intentionality behind it. And so there's this this dual principle here. There's this strong caution against having your serious devotion pointed in the direction of your own good in the pursuit of it. And to reorient that toward a serious devotion and commitment to striving after the benefit and blessing and good of others. That's the nature of this term. When you think about the gospel writers, they use this exact same term over and over again, all throughout the gospels, to describe the Pharisees in their relentless pursuit of seeking after ways to entrap Jesus, to trip him up, or to expose him as a false teacher. When you think of this term, and you think of the nature of it, think of the relentless, constant pursuit of the Pharisees trying to upend the ministry and mission of Christ himself. It's the same term. Seeking to arrest him, Matthew chapter 21, 46. Seeking false testimony against him, Matthew 26, 59. Seeking a way to destroy him, Mark eleven eighteen, To test him, they kept seeking a sign from him, Luke eleven sixteen, And then John 5, 18, seeking all the more to kill him. That's what the Pharisees were diligently pursuing and seeking after. It's the same term that the Apostle Paul uses here. On the other hand, this is also the word that is employed by Jesus to describe his primary purpose. In John 5.30, he says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now when you think of the mission of Christ Himself in seeking to save the lost, can you then get a sense of the intensity of this command? That Jesus did not come to, if opportunity availed itself to Him, to seek the lost. There was an intense, purposeful drive and aim for him to seek and to save the lost. And this is what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do in terms of seeking the good of others with that kind of conviction and commitment. Here in verse 24, chapter 10, Paul's clearly not making a general appeal to kind of just you know, make every effort to resist self-centeredness. Instead, he is actually commanding believers to seriously devote themselves to the diligent, purposeful, and consistent seeking out of the good of others as opposed to their own good. So again, living a life that is all to the glory of God, as he calls us to in this passage, It certainly requires us to recognize that regardless of the circumstances, it's usually not about us. And it's virtually almost all the time about others, so let's not make it about us. Now last week, we looked at these real-life scenarios, these first-century Corinth scenarios in verses 25 to 30 that Paul uses to sort of illustrate how this principle can be variously applied in what you might just call real-life Workaday scenarios. And you have, you have this setup here in verses 25 to 30 of basically two scenarios that result in three decisions, but all of them are driven by one objective, this objective of seeking the good of another. And scenario one, verse 25 to 26, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then again, scenario two, the first part of scenario two, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So both of these scenarios place the believer in what would be a very common environment. That's why I make the point that we are talking about the most specific, mundane, day-to-day exercises of life. These two scenarios are what would be very common environments in Corinth. You have one which would just be the local sort of market, the local meat market, and the other one would be you're invited to a meal at someone's home, a private kind of gathering. These would would be just common experiences. In both of those environments, there is the very real possibility not a certainty, but a very real possibility that, that in that setting, a believer could be presented with an option to either purchase for their own consumption, their own sustenance, or in the case of the meal with the unbeliever, to partake of food or meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols. That's the idea here. You're in a situation where... The, the food, the, the elements that have been used previously 
in pagan, demonic ritual worship could be on offer. But the fact of the matter is that they're not there, they're not being presented as that kind of element. In both cases, Paul is emphasizing here that there is no cause for a crisis of conscience. Rather, there is actual liberty for the believer in these cases to partake. Now, when you get into sort of modern-day society and, and thinking about those kinds of things, this needs to serve as a hedge against what you might say manufacturing matters of conscience or making what is, in fact, a point of Christian liberty into a point of moral compromise. And we've talked about, or referenced, I should say, maybe some of the more, uh, I don't know, you might say silly ideas. You know, there, there was a time where, and probably still is, where, you know, churches or whatever, they would, be, they would frown on, you know, certain kinds of attire. You know, women should never wear pants or something, some such like that. Um, and, and they might even ascribe to a person based upon some external, completely non-scriptural kind of uh, reference point. They might ascribe to it some point of moral compromise. And Paul here would say, you don't, you don't go into sort of a public arena where there are certainly going to be the possibilities of idolatrous tainted things and make it your moral cause of conscience to raise up those issues as though you're the only point of reference in that scenario, as though your sensibilities around societal right or wrongness is the mission that you're on in the public sphere. Hopefully we all understand that the mission of Christ and the mission of his people in gospel witness is not to transform a society into a moral society. We understand that, right? We're not trying to moralize society. If that is the beneficial fruit of transformed lives because they've encountered the living God in Christ and have been saved and redeemed out of the pit and given new life in Christ, and they begin to live that out, and as that happens in multiplied fashion, you have more and more permeating goodness and righteousness and holiness that begins to affect a community or a city or a nation or whatever, so be it. But that's not the mission. The mission is the gospel. So we can easily get askew and begin to think that our objective is to constantly raise in the public sphere moral issues for their own sake. And thereby, particularly issues of of conscience, excuse me, not conscience, particularly issues of Christian liberty. So, for example, um, you have the, the matter of consuming alcohol. Well, what do you do about that? Is it right or is it wrong? Can we or can't we? What's the scenario? How do you make that decision? 
Are there environments in which the consumption of alcohol could be akin to ritual, festival celebration motivated by idolatrous sensibilities? Is that, is that a possibility? Is that the same thing as a family gathering in which someone serves some wine or something? I mean, would we look at those the exact same? If I walk into a situation like that, am I making my decisions based upon the same criteria and saying this is, this is a matter of conscience? If you partake of that, it doesn't matter the circumstance, it doesn't matter the scenario, that's wrong. Is it? What am I provoking? Who else has gathered there? Is there an unbeliever there that will then begin to think that I guess what it means to be Christian is that you don't ever drink wine? Is that a reasonable, possible takeaway? I promise you that it is. So this is what the Apostle Paul is raising up for us here. The fact of the matter is, is that if we are our reference point, even if we're talking about making decisions that we constrain our liberties around, and we raise matters that aren't real conscience issues, but we try to turn them into or fabricate conscience issues in the public arena or in the presence of unbelievers, we then become, we, we then are seeking our own good more than we're actually seeking the good of others. Can you start to see why getting our heads around some of this is, is sort of the stuff of really deepening our understanding of what it means to walk in Christ? We're going to get to the end here, and the Apostle Paul is going to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is making a claim here at the end of this section that the things that he is articulating, he is articulating because those are the very things that have been exemplified in Christ himself. What was Christ known for? What was he lambasted for by the Pharisees? He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Right? The Apostle Paul was lambasted for his association with Gentiles, being a Jew. We can find ourselves, not because there's no cause for constraining a particular liberty in a particular setting, or not because, not because there's not a need for us to just avoid the situation altogether. There might be. But what he's saying is, don't go into the market, for example, and say, okay, first, before I do anything, I need to know where did all this meat come from? Show me the meat that was sacrificed to idols, and then I'll make my choice. What is that person making the issue about but themselves? That's what he's calling them to. The same situation in... The scenario in going to someone's house. He says there, very straightforwardly, if one of the unbelievers in verse 27 invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go. Now, here's the implication here. Really, it's, it's the obvious takeaway. That you're someone who's been invited to a meal and then in some way you are presented with meat that potentially was sacrificed to idols, and you respond on some kind of false you know, ground of conscience. 
So you went into an unbelieving environment with the expectation that they would not have unbelieving elements in view and on display. And so then you demonstrate a certain aversion to the fact that they're serving meat sacrificed to idols in this home of an unbeliever who invited you to their home and you determined that you were disposed to go. And then you raise a matter of conscience. Apostle Paul is saying, what are you doing? This is a stumbling block. You are, you're making something a matter of conscience that is not a matter of conscience. And in fact, he goes to that very place by saying, there is actual liberty in those situations. You can partake of the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. You're not, you're not violating some moral prohibition. He references in verse 24, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. This is just to say that this food has been provided for by the Lord himself. There's no need to, to raise some kind of matter about it. Or going back to chapter 8, verse 4, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. In other words, the idea here is that you're not, you're not going to partake of this because suddenly you, you want to participate in some ritual idol sacrifice. That's not what's going on here. So don't make it like that's what it is. Don't, don't confuse issues of conscience, of real issues of conscience, with some kind of moralistic, self-referential righteousness that you're wanting to put on display is the idea. You were invited, you chose to go. You went to the market, you put yourself in that position, conduct yourself in a way that doesn't make everything a reference point to you and your righteousness and also takes into account everyone else that might be around you, believer and unbeliever alike. And the last thing we want to do as believers is to demonstrate either by action of life and habit of life or by the words that we speak and the way that we communicate our faith is that somehow Christianity is about getting your life moral so that you can please God and then go to heaven. That's a damning heresy. We do not want that to be our messaging by our decisions or our lifestyle or the way that we communicate, particularly in the public arena. This is about gospel proclamation, even in, in this particular scenario, whether or not we choose to eat this food or not. It's about clarity of gospel proclamation. We'll see that as we move forward. There is real freedom here. One commentator says of this, these scenarios, he says, to ask questions and refuse to eat food which is explicitly identified as idol food would seriously reduce the food options available on a practical level. But to ask questions and then go ahead and eat the food that had been explicitly identified as an idol food could be interpreted by the one selling the food or by someone observing the transaction as a willingness to be considered a supporter of or a participant in the sacrifice that was made. To avoid asking questions was to avoid giving anyone the ability to associate the purchase with any religious intention on the part of the buyer. He's just raising a practical matter. You're going to raise questions over something? You better be willing to live under that standard perfectly. You've just now established a legalistic standard for yourself in public. You better be willing to live by it perfectly. Otherwise, you're going to demonstrate compromise that could be viewed by an unbeliever and create confusion at best. 
Now, Paul throws a little bit of a wrinkle into scenario number two, in which the application of Christian liberty and the seeking of the good of others come together in sort of a different decision. Looking in verse 28, he says, but you're at this, you're at this dinner at an unbeliever's house. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then he says, do not eat it. So I'm at the same house, same scenario, food's being offered. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to kind of raise a big stink. I'm not going to just kind of try to say, listen, you know, I'm only going to eat it if I know it's not been any, in any kind of ritual sacrifice. It's just a meal. It's just sustenance. It's part of what the Lord has provided. But a little bit of a wrinkle, someone says, this has been offered in sacrifice. Well, you have a different decision to make now. He says, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul is using this added element that really prompts a different command, and that command is to not eat of the food. And, And this is his way of pointing out that personal freedom is not absolute. This is the point that he's been making. It's not absolute. It's conditioned by this initial principle that we've already talked about, that it's not about us. It's about what is for the good of others. So we have to kind of work through that thought process. And now we're in a situation where someone has raised the matter. We didn't raise it. Someone raised the matter. And and it becomes an opportunity, or really a necessity, for the believer to not partake at that point. Clearly, this decision to forego this freedom to eat is an opportunity to freely seek the good of another. It's the central point of emphasis here. Verse 28b, for the sake of the one who informed you. It's not about me, it's just I'm doing this for the sake of the other. Verse 29a, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Clearly, the focus the Apostle Paul is making here is on the other person. As I mentioned last week, there is some measure of interpretive disagreement in these verses regarding who, who actually is this idle meat informant who just sort of comes along and upsets the apple cart a little bit? Who is it that came along and said, hey, you know, by the way? So some would argue uh, that it could be the host. Not many. It's not a very viable or plausible argument. There's not much on that position. The most sort of, I guess, I don't want to say controversy. It's just sort of differences in interpretation would be that this, this informant... Uh, is a a believer, a fellow believer that happens to be at this meal at this unbeliever's home. In fact, in in, in my first pass on this, I I kind of referenced this particular passage several months ago, and that was sort of my passing take on it. I just thought that's probably what it's referencing. So is is this a fellow believer who is raising this as a matter of personal conscience? Because the Apostle Paul deals with that extensively in chapter 8. And he cautions against those who do understand that this is, this is a point of actual liberty, that an idol is nothing, therefore meat sacrificed to idols doesn't mean anything, but if someone of weaker conscience, it's troubling to them, and your actions could further damage them in their spiritual life and their spiritual growth, then it's better to refrain. 
So is that what's going on here? So you got two, two big Johns that have this position, John Calvin and John MacArthur. They both kind of, in their interpretive matrix of this, they, they assume that this is a fellow believer. Here's what MacArthur says. He says, if anyone, in this case, another believer, happens to be there and tells you this meat is sacrificed to idols, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. Do not argue or condemn or insist on your own freedom. Give up your liberty so that his conscience will not be offended. Our brother's conscience sake is important, more important than the feelings of an unbelieving host. So that's kind of the direction that MacArthur's going here. He's like, all of a sudden now, the calculus has changed. You now have a fellow believer in the meal with you, and so that bounces you back to chapter 8, where you've got someone who's weaker conscience in these matters, and the, the very idea, the very notion of eating this food that's sacrificed to idols, that in fact is not... Uh, a, a, a prohibition, it is a liberty, but because they're troubled in conscience by it, because they're provoked in conscience by it, it's better for you to not eat of it. And even if the not partaking of that food creates a bit of an offense with the unbelieving host, better to preserve and protect and look out after the fellow believer who might be weaker in conscience in this area than to be overly concerned about the social offense of the unbelieving host. That's kind of the the calculus of this. He goes on to say, um, if we we have to choose between offending a Christian and offending a non-Christian, we should offend the non-Christian. The profit and edification of our brother or sister in Christ is of greater importance. Not only that, but our testimony will be harmed more by arguing with, it, with and condemning fellow believers than by standing by them in love. Unbelievers will be inclined to respect us for showing loving concern for the convictions of a fellow Christian. I'll just let that sit on you for a minute. I'm not sure I can go all the way there with beloved Pastor John, and I mean that sincerely. Um, but I'm not going to unpack all, I'm not going to do a big sort of you know, counterpoint with, with John, because I say these are, these are viable interpretive differences. There's another uh, view that this guest is an unbeliever. And so two commentators I, I can reference, Gordon Fee, who wrote a very good uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians, takes this position that it's an unbeliever, as well as the Pillar New Testament commentary series, uh, uh, um, Siampa and Rosner are the, the writers of that. Listen to what the Pillar New Testament commentary series about series uh, New Testament commentary says about this. Paul seems to depict the informant. It's like this CIA kind of situation. Paul seems to depict the informant as a pagan, since they do not use the pejorative term for idol food used elsewhere by Paul and other early Jews and Christians, but the neutral or positive term for food offered to a god or a divinity. So that's a little point of uh, interpretive difference based upon the actual text, the actual language of the text. So in the text, this particular reference to food offered in sacrifice is a technical sort of reference to pagan sacrificial offering that would be commonly used by a pagan, to describe that. 
There's another term, another Greek word that would be commonly used and is commonly used to describe how a Christian or a Jew would refer to meat sacrificed to idols. So a little bit of a technical you know, conclusion there being drawn on the different uses of these different terms. But they go on, he goes on to say, uh, they presumably mention the idolatrous association of the food because they are aware that Jews and Christians, the latter being considered a Jewish offshoot, had severe qualms about eating such food. They could be merely interested in the Christian's response or, more likely, they might think that they are helping the Christian by informing them so that they might make an informed decision regarding whether or not they would abstain from eating that item. Paul is not interested in the particular motivation or specifics of the hypothetical situation. What seems to be important is that the Christian has been informed that the food had been offered to an idol and someone knows it to be so and knows that they are aware of it. So this is kind of an interesting social dynamic. And by the way, there's no clear determination. If you're, if you're wanting to know, you know what the right answer is for the quiz, there is no right answer that I can give you and there is no quiz later. Um, it does seem to me, based upon both the, the identification of those technical term differences for the reference to the, the food offered in sacrifice is the, is the way it's kind of translated, um, leans toward it being an unbeliever. And also because the, the Apostle Paul does not then go into a very protective rhetorical spin of the situation to say, you've got to protect this unbeliever. If you go back to chapter 8 and you see how concerned he was for unbelievers in light of believers who are eating food sacrificed to idols and without any concern for these weaker, maybe newer or younger believers, he is very protective of them. He even says in chapter 8 that he would rather die than cause one of these to stumble. And so the fact that he kind of just moves past it and doesn't even really take up the issue with any more conviction or, or potency seems to me to also be an indication um, that this is probably an unbeliever. And then also, as we get toward the end here, I'll, I'll kind of uh, point to another uh, reference here that he, he says that I think is, is further um, compelling indication of that. Nevertheless, making that identification is not as essential as recognizing that the, the, the reference point in view is someone else. That what you are doing in that situation is, is freely depriving yourself of a liberty for the sake of someone else. The implication here is that someone raised this to his attention, not as a casual, just, oh, by the way, kind of statement, but as a point of, hey, listen, you know, this is, this is what you have here. And either you probably don't want to do this because, as I understand it, this is not what Jews do. This is not what Christians do. I mean, you can imagine if you're a, a pagan unbeliever in that situation, which I don't know if you've had any experience with this, but there's no shortage of unbelievers who are in the sphere of relationship with believers who have a complete misunderstanding of what being a Christian is all about. Like, they, they, if you were to ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian, they would articulate something that is almost nothing to do with being a Christian, even though they're in consistent 
routine interaction and fellowship, maybe in the context of family or work relationships. You know, you share meals together, you go out to lunch, maybe you, you travel on business together. So there's definitely interaction and relationship. There's familiarity with background and family. It's cordial. It's, it's friendly. It's not adversarial. There's, there's maybe a, a certain level of respect for your faith and your lifestyle. There's no sort of like badgering you over the head as a believer. But if you were to ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or what is the gospel? You would ask them very specific questions. Even if you'd shared the gospel with them explicitly, they would probably respond with some very confusing and some right and some wrong kind of terms because they're unbelievers. They, they, the word of God is spiritually appraised. There's, there's going to be confusion that's going to be in the mix there. And so the, the issue here is that we don't want to do anything to further that confusion, to, to provoke that confusion, to even confirm a confusing conclusion that they've drawn about what it means to be a Christian. And all of a sudden, we're sort of cavalierly making a decision, and we just confirm their conclusions. In this particular case, it's not unlikely that you could have a pagan who just sees this Christian thing as just a sect of Judaism. And we've had Jews in Corinth for a long, long time, and there's a synagogue here, and we've seen their odd practices, and we understand that they refrain from this, and they, they don't do that, and they don't do that, and they don't do that, and they're all about cleanliness and you know these all the ritual cleansings and all this kind of stuff. So, hey, by the way, just so you know, you're at this meal, just thought you should know, and all of a sudden now you're going to be like, if you don't have opportunity to kind of go into a big, lengthy discussion about you know, gospel truth and salvation, and you, know, you don't have the opportunity for that, just don't eat it. Don't, don't provoke that. That's the idea. Don't eat it. Give up that liberty. And that's the, that's the encouragement. That's the challenge. It's determined, in other words, by someone else's conscience, he says in verse 29b. We shouldn't view this as a situation in which our prerogatives or our liberties are being controlled by the other's conscience. That, that's what he says in verse 29. He, you, it's not that you're being constrained by their conscience. It's that you're exercising your liberty to not partake based upon your own freedom. And then he also says that you shouldn't be putting yourself in a position in which you're going to be denounced, maligned for partaking of this food, even if you've done it with sincerity of thankfulness. Even if you do recognize that this is a bountiful gift from the Lord, blessing from the Lord, as he quoted earlier, Psalm 24.1, this psalm of thanksgiving for the Lord's provision. Even if that's the case, you don't want to be in a position to where you're being maligned for partaking. So it's better to just not eat. Don't partake. And the point is, is that you have, at this situation, an unbeliever that their good is your concern. What, what, what lends itself to their good? You're seeking their good in that scenario. One commentator says, freedom and thankfulness are not, as some Corinthians might think, the key to ethical discernment. Rather, not even one's freedom and thankfulness to God justify putting oneself in a situation where others' consciences may lead them to think idolatry is being practiced or condoned. In all these scenarios, the driving motivation really is stated clearly by Paul in verses 32 to 33, where he says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks 
or to the church of God. He covers the waterfront there. This is a reference to unbelieving Jews, to unbelieving Greeks, and to believers. Likewise. That's what he's referencing there. Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Give no offense. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, that of many, that, but that of many, they may be saved. This is his driving motivation. And this really just simply elaborates on this, this more comprehensive, overarching command that is really to govern all of our motivations and actions in any of these scenarios. And we've said it several times now, regardless of the circumstance, it's usually not about you, so don't make it about you, because, number two, regardless of the circumstance, it's always about the glory of God. So always make it about the glory of God. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We tend to think about our lives especially when it, as it relates to how we're living them in the day-to-day, in the routine of life, we don't necessarily attach that to the very glory of God. So I was saying earlier, how can going to my next meeting or getting the kids to school or doing laundry or mowing the grass. I mean, how can this at all be attached to the glory of God? Well, if that's the case, then why would the Apostle Paul bring up something as mundane and routine and all the time as eating and drinking if there's no connection? And the Apostle Paul is pressing upon these Corinthians and pressing upon us that, no, everything is to be considered in light of whether or not it will, in fact, bring glory to God. That is the comprehensive motivation. That is the consummate good in all things and for all people. I remember as a young man, I was really beginning to to grow in the Lord and seek the Lord with a level of diligence and fervency and trying to learn how to effectively study Scripture and, and think, like really reflect upon it, think about it, think about its implications for life, and trying to look through the lens of biblical truth out at everything of life. It was kind of this new sort of putting the lens of Scripture in front of everything as opposed to looking at Scripture and saying, how will this apply to this situation? And how will this apply to that situation? And how will this verse help me in this situation? I was making this the Lord was doing this transformative work where I was beginning to just kind of put Scripture up in front of everything and try to understand life and reality and relationships and circumstances and everything through God's Word. That was that process I was in. And I was becoming more and more moved by a sense of awe that I kept seeing reflected over and over again in Scripture the fear of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and, and, and people bowing before it and having their, the direction and trajectory of their lives completely altered by it. I mean, that's what you're seeing here in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is just 
giving testimony of what the Lord had done in him when he met him on the road to Damascus. This is just him working out the Damascus Road experience. And I'll never forget, coming across Isaiah chapter 6, and familiar, I'm sure, to many of you, but just want to read it to you. He, he says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. This amazing recounting of Isaiah's call in which he was, by God's mercy and grace, given a vision of God in his throne room in all of his glory. And he responds ever so appropriately, woe is me. But I'm so moved by this reality that that this was the point at which cleansing and forgiveness comes that then in turn moves him out to the work that God had called him to. That, That Isaiah did not have this grand vision and encounter with the the exalted triune God in all of His manifest glory and then move into some kind of ethereal understanding about what He was supposed to do about that. He felt the weight of His sin before this holy God. He had nowhere to go, no answers to give, No worthy response to offer up. Just bow down in brokenness. And God in His mercy and grace takes away His guilt, atones for His sins, and then calls Him to go out and eat and drink and everything else that He's going to do in view of of this glorious God. It's not as though Isaiah, from that point forward, began to live his life sort of floating two or three feet above the ground and just skimming through life with pleasure and bliss. He went directly into a prophetic ministry, calling the people of Israel to repentance and suffering under that calling in no small measure. 
Calvin says this, There is no part of our life and no action so minute that it ought not to be directed to the glory of God and that we must take care that even in eating and drinking we may aim at the advancement of it. Let's pray.